Help keep Kinks and Beats Daily alive with a $4 monthly contribution and receive exclusive bonus episodes as our thank you to you. Visit herohabit.com slash shop for more details. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Kinks and Beats Daily. I'm your host, Tony Fry. This is episode 181. And today we are talking about one of the kinks' most well-known one of the kinks, one of the Beatles' most well-known tunes, uh, Come Together, released September 26, 1969 on their album Abbey Road as the album opener, and October 6, 1969 as a double A-side single with something. Single would top the American charts and hit number four in the UK. This track was written as Lennon was asked to come up with a campaign song for Timothy Leary. Uh, Timothy Leary was... I think he was a college professor somewhere, but he was a big advocate for hallucinogenic drug use. He was running against Ronald Reagan for California governor. Uh, and then he got popped for some weed and got arrested and that kind of ended his campaign. But before his campaign ended, he went to Lennon and he asked for a campaign song and Lennon actually struggled with it to complete this task. Um, and in, in the process of his struggle, he wrote, one of his most iconic songs. And he said, you know, it wouldn't work as a campaign song. The words are mostly nonsense, but he ended up sneaking in a a number one hit out of it anyway. Lennon was sued for copyright infringement over this song by a guy named Morris Levy. And Morris owned the publishing house Big Seven Music, And Big Seven owned the copyright to a ton of early rock and roll classics, including You Can't Catch Me by Chuck Berry. And so the lawsuit claims that Come Together um, was too similar to Berry's tune and and even lifted lyrics as uh, Berry sang in You Can't Catch Me, Here Comes A Flat Top, He Was Moving Up With Me. And then the first line of come together is here comes old flat top. He come grooving up slowly. So it's very, very, it's obvious. It, that is John Lennon. I don't think ever denied that that line was derivative of that, but he pulled lines from, you know, his favorites all the time. You know, we've got, um, we haven't talked about it on the podcast, but you know, run for your life. I'd rather see you dead little girl than to be with another man. He lifted that line from an old Elvis song. So this is not a new practice, and he did change it. And I don't think you really have, um, you really can't claim copyright infringement for something like that. But the they they insisted that the overall tone of the song was uh, too similar, and it was probably intentional. But here's the thing: even though it does sound a lot like Barry's song. Barry's song isn't really original either, right? He just used a standard blues technique that a thousand other songs had used over the 50 years to that point. And Lennon just happened to hit the same meter as Barry's, but Barry could have just as easily been sued by John Lee Hooker for stealing his entire catalog, right? If if Lennon's song had, if each stanza had one or two more syllables in it, that would have been enough to not make it like you can't catch me, but then it probably would have sounded like another uh, blues type song that kind of hovered over 
one note melodies, which is exactly what this does. So, um, in the end, Lennon does an out-of-court settlement, and he agrees to record three songs owned by Big Seven for a future album. Supposed to be his next album. And then the royalties from um, what he would have to pay to do those covers will make up for the fact that he ripped off one line and the essence of a Chuck Berry song. Um, but then Lennon releases Walls and Bridges. And except for like a 30-second version of Ya Ya, he doesn't hold up his end of the bargain. And there's a whole other story behind that. He'd actually started recording uh, an album of rock and roll covers, and then Phil Spector stole the tape and disappeared for six months or something like that. And and it turned into this whole thing. And so Lennon does Walls and Bridges. It doesn't have the three um, big seven songs. So Levy gets pissed off and he sues Lennon again. And Lennon smooths things over and he says, look, I got this other album. It's just going to be covers. It's in the work. Don't worry about it. By that time, he'd gotten the tapes back, paid an absurd amount of money to get his own tapes back. Uh, especially by 1973 or 74 standards um, gives those tapes to Levy as a show of good faith being like, look, I'm doing the work. It'll be on the next album. Just cool your jets. Um, but Lennon end up, ends up uh, losing the case for breach of contract has to pay $6,700. Okay. So then, uh, Levy releases an unauthorized album that he's gonna that he's gonna sell on late night TV as a you know call one eight hundred cool tunes and get this new Lennon album that you can't get anywhere else but by cataloging on the TV. Except he doesn't have the rights to release this album, and uh, and it, and it's from the stolen tapes that Lennon gave him in good faith that weren't finished. So Lennon countersues Lennon and EMI. They countersue um, for uh, the unauthorized Lennon album. And and Levy's now ordered to pay $150,000 in damages to EMI and to John Lennon because Lennon won, EMI got it for, you know, unauthorized reproduction of copyrighted material or something. Lennon got it for um, messing with his image. He's like, these tapes sound horrible. They're not finished. They don't represent, you know, what the finished product would be like. You you put the most obscenely ugly f- cover together for uh, for the the album. Like everything about it is bad for my image. So he got some money out of it. EMI got money out of it. Um, it was to say the least a mess. And I'll probably do a full podcast just on this period of weird stuff. But all that to say, it was all because come together kind of sounds like catch me if you can now on to the actual song recording began for this song on um july 21st 1969 they did eight takes that day and this was the first song lennon had presented to the band since the ballad of john and yoko and he only did that with paul so it's been a minute since all four of them were in the studio doing a new lennon track because that was back in april now we're in july 
These takes just featured John on vocals, George on guitar, Paul on bass, Ringo on drums. So it was basically the Who lineup, right? Three three guys playing instruments, one lead singer. Um, and then the next night they would add new lead vocals. John would add electric piano. There'd be some rhythm guitar and some percussion added. And aside for some guitar overdubs and backing vocals, that was pretty much the extent of the recording of this track. They did this one quick. Uh, you know, the the majority of the recording was done in those first eight takes on July 21st. You can hear take one on the anthology three, and take five can be heard on the 2019 Abbey Road box set. If you're interested, they don't sound all that different. The band had pretty much locked in the arrangement pretty early on, but it is interesting to hear how it gets cleaned up and tweaked and, you know, the little bits of pieces that get messed around with to get you to that finished product. It's interesting um, for Kinks fans, I guess, that Lennon wasn't forced to change the lyrics to he shoot cherry cola in this track. Cause we all know what happens the next year when somebody mentions Coca-Cola in a song, but Lennon got a free pass on this one. I was once told an interesting theory about the lyrics, possibly from my father. So credit where credit is due. If it was, if it was dad, thanks for this. Cause it's stuck with me all these years and I'm a hundred percent positive. John did not intend it, but it actually works. Um, unlike a lot of times when you read into lyrics and it kind of falls apart. This one, I actually think is a cool analysis that had John had the intention to do it. Um, he could have really made it something cool. But John starts the song off by saying, shoot me over and over and over again. And so for the sake of this cool analysis, let's say he's dead. And the singer in this song is the from the perspective of, of the corpse at a funeral. Okay. So now we've got, um, he goes on to list the people in attendance at the funeral as they're coming up to pay their respects. Here comes old flat top. He wear no shoe sign. He bag production. He's as the people are coming up to pay their final respects. He from, you know, the perspective of the, of the corpse is talking about him and then come together over me as in over the casket, right? They are all coming together um, to look down at him as he's buried or whatever. So in that respect, it's kind of a cool lyric. It's never even been hinted at by John as the source of the lyric. In fact, he called it nonsense lyrics, but it does add a little story to the nonsense lyrics. And, you know, it'd be cool to do as like a video or something. And to have this underscore probably most famous from this song is the iconic bass and drum lines by Paul and Ringo respectively. There are very few songs where the bass and drums are so ingrained in the composition. um, Like these are that they themselves become as crucial as the melody and the Beatles were great at this. Usually it was George that was contributing that instrumental hook that was, you know, a critical part of the composition. But in this case, it is all Paul and Ringo, you know, George is laying back being groovy, but Paul and Ringo are locking in. You know, and then you look, Gary Clark Jr., Aerosmith, Michael Jackson, and Godsmack have all recorded this song, and they all did very different covers of this track, but they all had elements of that bass and drum in their recordings. And what makes the bass so cool is that it peaks on an F. 
but the chord being played, a D7, um, has an F sharp in it. And this dissonance adds to the moodiness of the track. We discussed in a previous episode, I believe Taxman, but I could be wrong. But we talked about the Jimi Hendrix chord, which was, it's just a sharp nine chord. People call it the Jimi Hendrix chord because he famously, you know, abused it in uh, one of his guitar riffs. But it's just a sharp nine chord. There's nothing really special about it. It just sounded cool the way he played it and it became synonymous with him. And the sharp nine creates, a sharp nine is the same as a sharp two. And a sharp two and a flat three are the exact same note. So when we're talking about, um, he's going up and he's playing E sharp technically, not F. He's it's technically an E sharp. And then you've got the F sharp right next to it. You've got these two conflicting notes because one of them makes the chord minor. One of them makes the chord major. You're not supposed to have them both at the same time. And so it, it creates this clash. You've got this minor second right clashing together. It's the smallest interval in music is a minor second. And you've got these right on top of each other. And so... um what he's doing on the bass is he's playing that sharp nine gives us the elements of a D minor chord. And then other parts of the song are giving us elements of a D major chord. But in fact, that's not really an F sharp anywhere while the D major chord is being played. The D major is almost just implied mostly by the groove that George is playing underneath it. And the fact that John sings a C sharp in the melody. That's where we pull D major out of this because he never really hits a D major chord. All the tonality points to D minor, but with that C sharp in there, um, it pulls, it, it makes it a, a D major and there are F sharps elsewhere, but not under the D, underneath the D chord. Um, and then John's vocals are also grounded on the F natural. So it's a cool bluesy harmonic structure. Um, almost absent of any true tonal center, but that's cool. And beyond that, there's not much going on harmonically, um, but there doesn't need to be. Sometimes the simple songs are the coolest ones, and uh, this is definitely one of the coolest, funkiest tracks the Beatles ever did. If you haven't done so already, swing by our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash kinksandbeats. Follow us on our new Twitter. Twitter uh, handle is at Kinks and Beats. Or give us a call, email, all that kind of stuff. I'm still looking for people to tell me what song they've changed their opinion on. We're putting together some bonus episodes. I want to know a song that you loved before that you hate now, a song you hated before that you love now. What song is it? How did your mind change? What changed it? And um, go ahead and leave me a voicemail with that information at 925-494-1739. Or if you just want to talk about a previous episode or episode that I'm about to do, you can you can send me those voicemails. All right. I hope to see you guys all around on the Facebook group. And um, make sure you leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Have a great day. This podcast is presented by the Hero Habit Podcast Network. 
Swing by HeroHabit.com today to comment on this episode and poke around our growing database of sports and pop culture news, reviews, and collectibles. HeroHabit.com. Collect your heroes.